All right, if we are all honest with one another, there's a small voice in all of our heads that will whisper from time to time, I wonder if that thing would make me happy. Or there's a little voice inside of all of our heads that if I achieved this or that, man, that would fill my life up. Wouldn't it be great if we just had just a little bit more money or just a little bit more something to make us like complete or happy? I don't know if that little voice is just in my little heart and head. Hopefully you're trying to understand that because deep inside, I think all of our hearts is this idea that maybe if we had more, we would actually feel better or be better. And that's why this time last year in October, uh, the Mega Lotto went up to $1.5 billion. And there are people in this room, potentially, who have never bought a lotto ticket in your life. And yet when you saw $1.5 billion, you thought to yourself, maybe, just maybe, I should pick one up. I'll pick up a little scratcher or whatever that is that you do when you get $1.5 billion. Because the little voice at that moment says, because if I won that thing everything would be great. Is it just me? Or is that little voice true in all of us? On our TV screens, uh, on a nightly basis, we see these game shows where people risk $200,000 for just a slim chance to win the million. And they do it over and over and over again. It's in their hearts and in our hearts, and it's just kind of in our society. We just can't help it. We think that if we had more, things would be better. And that's why 2008, the fall of 2008, was so grim for so many people. You see, in 2008, in three days, the economy crashed. Uh, some people say that it was the worst crash that had ever happened since 1929 that set off the Great Depression. In three days, we saw the Lehman Brothers go bankrupt. We saw Merrill Lynch, AIG, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, HBOS, Royal Bank of Scotland, Bradford and Bingley, Fortas, and many others within just a breadth of doing the same if the federal government had not stepped in to help them. There were CEOs and COOs that were filing for bankruptcy over and over. And the aftermath of that crash... And the months and the seasons after that, what you saw was a spike in something. A spike in CEOs and COOs and branch manager suicides after that economic crash. And why is that? Because somehow, some way, in their hearts, they had attached what they were worth to their worth. And those two things cannot be attached. And yet that's what happens over and over and over in our lives. We're trying to gain significance by gaining something. Today, we're just going to be talking about that, these two words, gain and profit. Because we think that if we are able to do this, then our lives will change potentially forever. This is kind of the thought for the day. Because it is a warning. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is one big warning. Today is a warning, and probably week in and week out, there will be morning, more and more warnings, is that we need to beware. There should be a warning. That apart from God, people gain nothing for their work, or people gain nothing for their toil. So there's a warning. 
that absent God or depart from him, that we will not gain anything because of our work and our life. This is a really strong statement. This, uh, this uh, fall, we're going to be going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is one of those books that is in, in, in increasingly hard and harder to interpret. We've had thousands of years of reading this book, and yet it just continues to get hard on us. Uh, because, number one, is that um, it's just he tends to contradict himself. He says outlandish thing like there's nothing to gain for our work and that potentially shocks us. In fact, we would call this like the shock jocks on the radio. We would see that the book of Ecclesiastes are these people, is, is the teacher reaching out into our lives and trying to shake us and trying to wake us up for something that we are completely ignoring. This is a gift from God, however, because it's a part of our work. It's a part of the Bible. It's not only just a gift from God and a part of our Bible, it's a gift from God because what it does, it will make us aware of our reality. It will continue to paint a picture that is more real than what we try to seem. If you were thinking about kindergartners, this is, this is a little less like paint by numbers. This is paint like outside the lines because all of life is a little bit more messy than you and I would want to take credit for. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to kind of shake us into understanding that life is not tidy and neat and nice and everything is predictable. The author is often attributed to the Song of Solomon who was once said to be one of the wisest men to ever walk this earth. Solomon's at the end of his life, and he's pinning these words for us. We named this Under the Sun. We have this graphic, and we have this title, because we want this to kind of be the, the image and the phrase to be burned into us. You see, you see people doing very normal things things that you and I do on a day-to-day -day basis. The writer of Ecclesiastes is having us to consider how we walk our dogs and how we raise our kids, the way we exercise, the way that we work, the way that we play, the things that we would read, the relationships that we have, everything that we see bearing down on us under the sun. He wants you and I to put a microscope to it and say, I want you to consider this. Because we do a lot of things under the sun. We're a part of a lot of things and oftentimes we put too much value in the things over that. This phrase, under the sun, happens 29 times in the book. So it obviously is something. The book of Ecclesiastes and the writer of Ecclesiastes wants you to contemplate two different directions. One, your horizontal relationships. And then also your vertical relationships. When we think about under the sun, this is how we think about our vertical relationships with everything. And he's wanting us to be very, very critical of the everything under the sun. Not some things. He wants us to be critical of everything under the sun. He is trying to help us with our perspective. You see, oftentimes we accept too much of what this world has to offer. And we end up rejecting what God has for us. 
he wants to flip that. And he wants us to accept what God has in God's worldview and reject all the promises that this world has to offer. King Solomon writes this and pens this letter at the end of his lifetime, right? After he's experienced all types of things. And he's writing to his people. He's King Solomon and he's the king over all of Israel. Now, Israel has done a lot in the last couple of hundred of years. It's been a long time since the nation of Israel were in the desert under the tyrannical rule of of the pharaohs and they were limited to Goshen. It's been a long time since they were slaves. It's also been a long time and since, since they were walking in, to, in the wilderness on their way to the promised land when they would literally have to wait on manna to fall from heaven every single day. This is a new day and time. They're no longer slaves and they're no longer bequest to something that's going to come out of the, the sky to feed them on a day-to-day basis. In this day and time, they're in the, the season of King David. King David is the one who was able to smote the the enemies. King David is is the one who brought notoriety to Israel. uh, uh, This is the age in which the nation of Israel was feared among, among all nations. This is the time in which Solomon is writing. Not only this time of King David, but also right now. Under King Solomon, we see prosperity beyond prosperity. And we're able to see one of the greatest building um, modes you know, that humanity has ever seen. Because Israel is so dominant and so wealthy, they literally could do anything they wanted to. So that the world leaders were actually coming to Jerusalem to find out what was really going on. In the same way, Solomon is writing to that people group who have understood despair but are currently in prosperity. This is a warning to Israel, but it's also a warning to you and I. And the warning is, beware. Apart from God, what we do to gain everything that we try to gain is nothingness for our toil. Apart from God, people gain nothing for our toil. So that's when we need to turn to Ecclesiastes. Um, We're going to do verse 1 next week. So we're going to jump all the way to verse 2. And we're going to read this verse. You've got it in your bulletins. You've got it in your Bibles. Now you've got it in your little booklets. And you will read this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. That's, I didn't repeat myself. It's in there. All is vanity. One more time. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities. If you look at the Hebrew construct of this, there's only eight words here. Five of which is vanity. Even in our English translation, there's 12 or so. And you will see this repetition of vanity of vanities. What does vanity mean? In today's side, when we look at vanity, we think of the selfie. And we see all these people with selfie sticks doing the duck lips. Right this? Right? That's what we think of vanities. Or if you are another generation, you think of Snow White and the evil princess lady, whatever. And she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the you know, fairest of them. And there's another answer, 
right? There's something else. So this is what we think about when we think of vanity, is this fact that we just, we all, it has to be about us. However, when you look at the Hebrew, this is not that word. It's a different word. In fact, vanity has a couple of things. Vanity means a breath or a mist, right? Or a vapor or even smoke. So vanity in Hebrew, the word havel, is a vapor or a breath or even smoke. And so beyond this picture of breath, think about if we walked out on a cool morning and we breathed out, what do you see? You kind of see a plume of smoke leading you, right? So this is the word for vanity. And so what Solomon is trying to tell us here is that it's not just that it's smoke or a vapor. What he's trying to say is the kind of the the picture that he's trying to build out is that it's short, or that it's fleeting, that it's, it's not going to last very long, that it's short-lived. Another word for this is ephemeral, right? That's a smart word, but ephemeral is when you pick a flower and it wilts. It's just that it's short-lived or fleeting or short or empty or idle. And so when you think about this, another way to translate this is meaningless, meaningless, short-lived, short-lived, fleeting, fleeting, ephemeral, ephemeral. It's not going to last, he is trying to tell us. Everything is like a breath. Can you imagine the worth of trying to catch the breath that you breathe out on a winter morning and you try to catch it in your hands and you put it in your pocket? People would call you crazy. People would think that you had lost it a little bit because you're trying to capture something that is unable to be captured. And then if you're able to capture it somehow, to try to stuff it in your pocket to be able to take it someplace. This is what it means for vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All. Everything under the sun has some sense of meaningless or short-livedness or ephemeral, or fleetingness to it. And it would be wise for us to understand this. And he throws a dart right at Americana. The very thing he says right after this, he says in a question, verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? To gain. What does a man gain by all of his work? The word gain is a very southern word. This is Appalachia at its best. This word gain means leftovers. And if you've ever been at a really good meal, right, and it was really well cooked, guess what you have? You have leftovers. And so a second day soup is better than first day soup. The Friday after Thanksgiving is often a better meal because there's leftovers. You get more of it. You get to do it again, over and over again. So if when you think gain, think leftovers because this is something you get to do twice again. There's something left. But when Solomon uses it, he uses it in this idea of work or toil or being able to do something with your own hands. 
And he says, at the end of the month, after the prophet and the lost sheet hits your desk, what do you have left over? What is in the black, not in the red? This is what he means. What does a man have left over for all the things that he does and he works, in which he works with his own hands, with all of his might under the sun? This is a question. And then he walks over to a candle on a black table. And he does this. He says, that is the value of all of our work and our effort and our pain and our toil. It's gone that fast. And yet, all of us, because we're Americans, man, we work hard, don't we? All of us have thought about just education system and the over-promising of that degree because it's going to get you where you're supposed to get. Or all those athletes in here who are putting in the hard work to get something from it. And yet, what First Kings says is, wise upon wise, a man who knows more than any of us combined would look to all of our toil and blow out a candle and say, that's what it's worth. This semester may not be nice to you and I because we are going to be confronted by these types of truths that maybe, just maybe, we're putting our effort in the wrong way and that apart from God, maybe, just maybe, nothing really is of value that we think. And really quickly, we will look at how he describes vanity of vanities and how we are to gain this toil. Verse 4 says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You think you have an impact on the world? Let me just show you a few examples from what this world has to say. It says this in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens, it hurries, it runs, it sprints to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. And so what King Solomon, the one who is exceedingly wise, what he does is he wants you to look at, natu- at the natural activities of this world. And he wants you to look at the natural activities and say, to gain some perspective of the toil that you and I are giving our lives for. He first says, let's look at the sun. What do we see in verse 5? We see that the sun rises and then the sun sets only to hurry or sprint back to the place where it rises. 
He's wanting you to go out to a sunrise or to a sunset. And he wants you to sit there day in and day out. He wants you to sit there, crisscross applesauce, and point the same direction and say, I just want you to watch what happens. 24 hours after 24 hours, you're going to see the same thing over and over and over. And he will say, what has the sun done to gain something. Nothing because he has a track. And the track, right, as the earth orbits the sun, we just see that happen over and over and over again. What does the sun attain? The sun attains nothing. What it's changing. Nothing is changing. The same sun that warmed the cheeks of King Solomon's face or the same sun that gives us sunburn at the beach. It's the same thing because the sun is what the sun does and we sit on planet earth and now we should be sitting back in our chairs a little bit because in the same way, he's linking our work and our effort apart from God. And he says, this is what you can expect. And if that wasn't enough, he then turns to the wind. He says, there's also the wind's work. The wind's work is equally as maddening. We think that the wind is as free as a bird. It's able to go wherever it wants to until we kind of see what's going on. Verse 6 says that the wind blows to the south and then goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits it returns. As King Solomon looks at the world in both sun and now wind, he says it's the same exercise of futility. It just continues to circulate over and over and over. This is a warning to you and I who have put all of our effort into what we do for a living. He says that we need to make sure that we gain perspective. We need to walk outside of those doors with just a little bit better perspective of what we are giving our lives to. Because if we give ourselves to work and work alone, and that's it, it will end up in nothingness. Ask the sun, and it works harder than you. Ask the wind, and it, and it travels farther than you. And then ask the water. Ask what the water does in its work. Three examples of nature's activities. And all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. Evaporation and rain. Evaporation and rain. Drainage. Streams. Evaporation. River. It drain, And it just goes on and on and on it goes. Likely King Solomon is looking over the Mediterranean Sea and he's watching it. And potentially it was like a rainy season, like an extra rainy season. And he stares at it and he sees these streams and these rivers continuing to pour into this one basin of water. And he goes, huh, it never fills up. It just is what it is. Where's all the water going? Because it's just on a cycle over and over and over again. In all three of these natural activities, we see incessant activity. Repetition over and over and over. Is it purposeful? Absolutely. Is it needed? Absolutely. Are there benefits? 
Absolutely. And yet, is there gain? The question this morning is not about our toil or our work. It's in how we look at gain or left over or why we are trying to do all that work. If we're trying to get ahead, King Solomon tells us, it is a work in futility. And if nature didn't do it for you, he then goes to human activity. He then looks at verse 8 and he calls these things weariness. He's looking at these three other examples. And so the book of Ecclesiastes has great parallel, right? Parallelism. And so you've got three natural and three personal. And you kind of see these things play off. And he is about to say, if you thought this was bad, just wait till you look at human activity. Human activity starts with our mouth. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And so the mouth's work is to speak, and yet we will not run out of words. There's always something to be said. That's why cable television is making a killing. That's why the newspaper press is still not dead. That's why hundreds and thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of books are published every single, every single year. That's why we send our kids to school and college to hear the mouth talk. And yet we will never run out of words. So if we're putting our worth and our value in the work of our, what our mouth is able to do, guess what? It's just incessant. We will just continue to talk and talk and talk and the words just go. In the same way, if you don't believe the mouth, look at the eye. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear and its hearing. Retired couples travel because they can't wait to get their eyes full of things they've never seen before. And yet the second they come back home and they develop the pictures, they start planning what? Another trip. That's why artists fill up museums full of beautiful art. And visitors go to the Met every single year only to want to come back again. That's why we have AirPods in our ears And there's the new songs and the new things that we want to listen. That's why the podcasts are just raining from heaven, literally. That is why we just can't, we just can't wait to do these things again. Think about the person that you just lost. The closest person that you just lost. And you would simply say, I just wish I could see him or her again or here those wonderful words just one more time do you know why because in the same way that the mediterranean does not fill up our mouths and our eyes and our ears they just simply do not have a capacity to be full we will always be dissatisfied that's just the way it is this is a threefold pattern Of not just nature, but also human activity gone in an instant. And so Solomon, he's good. He knows what we're about to say. But wait a minute. What about all that activity? 
What about all of the stuff? Have you not seen the Roku stick? Have you not seen the iPhone 11? Have you not seen a lunar rocket? Have you not seen, I mean, we are awesome at life and we do all kinds, I mean, there, surely there's not nothing, nothing. Surely it's just hyperbole. And he answers this, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. That's the second time we've heard it. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, look at all this new. This is new. He pauses. He says, it is already. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. There's nothing new under the sun, he will say. As you view your work and what you give yourself up to, you may be a businessman in here or a businesswoman in here who sunk your life into what you do. I hope that today was a warning just to potentially ask why if you are a mom in here and you've been called to be a homemaker or raise your children and you've put all of your effort and energy into this endeavor, why would you do that? Maybe you're in ministry and you think about the work that you do every single day, every single prayer. And what Solomon is asking, whether it's ministry or motherhood or in corporate America, to ask why are we going to this type of effort? And we come back again with a warning for us. And he would say, beware. Beware of the toil that you do apart from God. If you notice the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes it's devoid of God. There's no mention of him at all. And there's a reason for that. Because he wants us to look at the world in the most secular of eyes. And he wants you and I to know that without God, there is no value whatsoever. And yet in history, there's a man named Jesus. And Jesus had great work. Many years later, after Solomon, there was a radical event. Jesus, the Son of God, comes onto planet Earth to complete the work. Jesus says, you are not of this, uh, uh, you are of this world, but I am not of this world. Jesus says that I've come to give you new life. I've come to give you a new covenant. I've given you, come to go to give you new things. Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. The only work that we can rest in is God's work. The only new under the sun is actually attributed to the one who was not under the sun first, but was the sun first and foremost. He is the one that we pivot to fully and completely. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, I am from above. And you're of this world. He says, I have come to make all things new. And then he uses the work word. He says, what will it profit a man? What will it profit a woman to gain the entire world and yet forfeit his soul? 
He is using the words of Solomon in this time. Like, do not bank on the leftovers or the gain or the profit of your toil. There's got to be something that we do. Apart from God, there's nothingness in our toil. And yet when we include him, when we allow Jesus' work to complete him, then our businesses are able to make sense finally. And our motherhood is able to make sense finally. Or the reason that we're pursuing a degree or athleticism is only because of what Jesus has done. He is the one that gives you purpose completely and fully. If you leave him behind, if you leave God alone, you're just going to end up where Solomon ended up. Completely and totally frustrated. He then warns one more time, do not store up for yourselves treasures again on earth where moth and rust will destroy, where thieves will come in and steal, but store up treasures that are in heaven. This is what Jesus has done for us fully and completely. Apart from Jesus, apart from God, all of our gain is worth nothing. Here's what I'd love for you to do this afternoon, tonight. Potentially ask this question. What is a time when you felt like you gained something? Like the thing that you wanted so badly was actually yours. And then only to find out that this thing in some time that you were dissatisfied over again. I want you to think through a time or think about a thing that you actually were able to gain and which you really, really wanted. And then you pushed pause and you just gave it a little time and then you saw dissatisfaction creep in. At the end of the day, if you spend a little time, even 15 minutes on this little activity, spend 10 minutes talking to your spouse about this activity, if you just spend just a little bit of time, it will all be true for all of us that this has happened. What Solomon is saying is that you take this thing and you extrapolate it over all of life and you're going to come to the same thing. That apart from God, there's truly dissatisfaction in this life. And But what Jesus says fully and completely. He says, I have come to give you life. And you know what the back end of that that, uh, verse says? I have come to give you life and life to the full. Full. There is a new. There is a full. There is a gain in work and it's in person and work of Jesus. Right now, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper And we're going to celebrate in the finished work of what Jesus has done. And we're going to see that it's his work and his work alone that has allowed us to be valuable and for us to gain. And then we're going to sing two amazing songs. And I want you, if you believe in this table, if you understand that Jesus is our fully work, I want us to sing and just lift the roof off of this place because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, the New Testament tells us that there is a finished work of Christ Jesus. And everything that we put 
in front of you or beside you or behind you will literally fall to the ground, never to be seen again. I pray for the mom who may have overstepped her boundaries and thought that this was her significance. Or a dad who thought like, oh, I'm not going to be like my dad and overstepped even that significance. Or a businessman or a woman who've given everything for that thing. Or a college student or an athlete in here who thinks that that is where life is to be found. We will see some beautiful pictures all throughout Ecclesiastes. And we will be able to experience wonderful things. But King Solomon tells us that apart from God, we will not be able to get the richness and the clarity and the satisfaction that these things are able to give to us. I pray that you invite Jesus into your work endeavor, into your motherhood, into your classwork. Allow him to bring significance into those things. We ask this in Jesus' name.